Scientists and politicians have expressed relief, but also some confusion about the apparent decline in new daily COVID cases across the UK. And to add to the complexity, different models for measuring cases are now giving different indications of whether that decline even took place or whether it is even taking place right now. Let's run you through the different sources of data on this question. So the one we hear most about is from Public Health England. They're the official statistics, people who have tested positive any one day. It's what you hear on the news. It's what the government announced at their briefings. Today, as we stand, there were 29,622 new COVID cases reported in the past 24 hours. That's not a low figure. Um, it's also slightly up from 24,000 four days ago. That was the, the lowest we've had um, in the last couple of weeks. But as you can see from this graph, it is significantly down from seven days ago. And the seven-day average is falling quite sharply. As you can see, they're down 36% on the previous week. We can zoom in a little bit now for good measure on those last couple of days, just so you can see where that dip happened and where we might be having a slight uptick. The benefit of Public Health England data and why we hear so much about it is because it comes in real time. They're also all confirmed cases. There aren't any estimations going on here. There is a downside, though, which is that it can be affected by how many people and especially which people are getting tested. That's where the Office for National Statistics data comes in. We use them a lot on the show. Um, they don't have to account for the number and what type of people are getting tested because it is a representative sample of the population. They go around and test the same group of people and then from that estimate who has COVID-19. It's not at all affected by who is turning up to get tested because they go out and do the testing themselves. That is not looking as rosy. The ONS released a report today and they estimate that in the week ending the 24th of July, one in 65 people in England had COVID-19. That's compared to one in 75 the previous week. Remember, according to PHE, cases peaked on the 15th of July. The ONS at this point are telling us that in the week ending the 24th of July, cases were still rising. We can have a look through in bit more detail of that data now. They say, according to the ONS, cases were up in all nations of the UK apart from Scotland, where cases fell from 1 in 80 to 1 in 110. The biggest rise you can see there, or the most dramatic rise, was in Northern Ireland. And cases there went from 1 in 170 to 1 in 65 in a week. That's an enormous rise. Wales, fairly steady. They went from 1 in 210 to 1 in 160, so rising, but fairly gently. And as I've said, England risen from 1 in 75 to 1 in 65. As I've said, the weakness in that ONS data is that it's a lagging indicator. It could just be that we're waiting for the ONS data to catch up with the PHE data. There is one other tracker um, of COVID cases or an, another um, method for estimating how many cases there currently are. That's done via the Zoe Symptom Tracker app, and this isn't supposed to have a time lag. They've modelled case rates on the basis of reported symptoms to their app, which um, hundreds of thousands of people have downloaded, and they don't believe cases to have fallen in line with the NHS dashboard. This is how they are currently modelling cases. As you can see there, PHE um, shows the cases falling dramatically, and as that's happening, Zoe suggests that actually they are remaining stable. Tim Spector runs the Zoe app, and in this YouTube Q&A session, he explains what he thinks is going on. 
This sudden drop in confirmed cases uh, that are released by the government every day, it's dropped something like 30% in two days, which is pretty much unheard of in pandemics. And remember, this is happening without restrictions, without lockdowns, without some sudden event. So to me, uh, it, it looks a bit fishy. It looks as if there's some other explanation for this other than suddenly the virus has, has given up. Could be that less young people are getting tested. Uh, there is no, we're not able easily to get those government figures. But if the proportion of young people being tested is going down and, and older people going is going up, that could explain uh, this, this chain. And we know that a lot of people are concerned about uh, the pandemic. They may not want to get tested because they might be told to self-isolate. They might uh, want to be going on holiday or going to concerts, etc. And so this could be a potential phenomenon that's upsetting those results. So Tim Spector thinks the fall shown by PHE was fishy, but who should we believe and how should we interpret the different signals being given out by these different data sources? To find out earlier today, I spoke to Alex Crozier, a biomedical researcher at Queen Mary University. There's a number of uh, sources to interpret this case data from, and they all use uh, different, slightly different methodologies. And so therefore, it's sort of, while it sounds sort of confusing that there's these different um, scenarios being sort of painted, it does actually make sense that different methodologies and different teams will, will produce different, different data. I think when you look at sort of the evidence in totality, it is quite clear that the, the falling cases was true um, by how much is sort of the, the key interesting question. Um, but that, of course, doesn't mean that cases aren't going to um, go up maybe uh, soon again. Um, there's a number of reasons. I think you had um, Billy Quilty on, on the other day uh, who gave, yes, basically summed up how complex the situation is right now and how challenging it is to interpret um, the, the case data at the moment. Would there be a point at which you would say, oh, maybe the Public Health England data is wrong? And I suppose what I mean by that is at the moment, these sources of data don't accord. Would there be a, a time where you thought, oh, if the ONS is still saying um, there is this much COVID in the, the community, then it must have been because of something like testing, the, the kind of thing that, that Tim Spector is suggesting. The ONS and the React, the React data as well are the most reliable data sources we have because they attempt to take a, a representative sample of, of the population. But they're, of course, always on a lag. And the, there's sort of other complications there where you can continue to test positive by PCR for, for a long time after you've been infected. And so when you're coming down from a, from a peak of an epi epidemic curve, that can influence figures and, and that has influenced figures, which is why I think there's some confusion today as, as, as to why ONS is saying cases are still going up. Um, but really, I think my interpretation of, of the ONS data is actually that that shows that there was a fall. And certainly, so yeah, I would say if ONS data is very obviously disagreeing with Public Health England data and on that lag, then we can maybe say there's um, the main causes, te reduced testing or, or other, other reasons like that. But I think at the moment, it is quite clear um, and understandable that, that cases did fall. It's just that question of how much, by and why, really. So when it comes to the Public Health England data so that's people who went to get tested and tested positive we have seen a slight uptick in that since midweek now the debate i'm seeing on twitter is between people saying this might just be a blip or this is a new surge a new wave at what point will we know which one of those it is 
yeah, I don't think anyone really knows where exactly it's going to going to go. Graham Medley, the um, chair of sort of the modeling modeling group of Sage, said, you know, we're likely to see a number of peaks and troughs over the coming months, and cases will likely stay high and go sort of up and down occasionally. And of course, throughout the epidemic, even even in sort of the winter waves, when cases were going up, they 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 plateaued and went down for a few days, and you know, it's very sort of. Um, a, a complex system, yeah. But I think it's 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 too early to say. When, when, I don't think we're at um, herd immunity yet. And it's too early to say um, that, that this growth won't come back or that hospitalizations won't rise again, which which we saw for the first time in a long time actually plateaued uh, this week, which is is very good news. Um, so yeah, there's there's certainly a long way to go, but it's definitely a good thing that we managed to lift all uh, restrictions on mixing and and not have the sort of disaster surge that that some predicted. That was Alex Crozier explaining some of the nuances of the different data sources. Something that's particularly interesting about the ONS that I think is potentially under-discussed is that people can test positive for COVID-19 in a while. So there's a lag because we don't get the data until a week later, just because it takes longer to collect than PHE, but also potentially because PHE is measuring new infections and the ONS is measuring who is currently suffering from COVID-19. And as we know, you know, you can suffer from that for, for a week or so. So we might not see that in the ONS data for a while. It's only just now, actually, it's only in this latest release that the, the fall in Scotland has become apparent. Obviously, though, lots of uncertainty as to what's going to come next. The final bit of data we have from these SAGE studies is casting doubt on the usefulness of Perspex screens. So those things you see often appearing in pubs to separate tables under the pretense or ostensibly so that it will stop people passing COVID-19 to one another. Sage is suggesting potentially that's not very useful at all. They say there is very little data on the effectiveness of screens and barriers at reducing infection transmission from epidemiological modeling or laboratory studies. And they do say there is some reason to believe it would prevent the spread of COVID via droplets but not at all for airborne transmission, which we know is very, very important. And they say that on that front, when it comes to airborne tr transmission, it could even be counterproductive. So this is the Environmental Modeling Group on SAGE. They write, there is some epidemiological and mechanistic evidence that suggests that screens could increase risks of aerosol transmission due to blocking changing airflow patterns or creating zones of poor air circulation behind screens. This effect will depend on the local airflow patterns. Aaron, if I still have you, I think I do. Perfect. I'm here, Michael. I'm here. We, we we have on this show talked a lot about how some of the supposed COVID safety measures where people say, oh, no, I've made the pub COVID secure. How could I possibly have to close it during a lockdown? We've often said they were mainly fear to this idea of, of perspex screens, which can protect you from COVID-19, which is an airborne disease. Opening the window or opening the door is, is far more important. How frustrating is it that we're still having this conversation when this should have all happened last summer. There are actually other countries where they are talking much more about ventilation in the United States. They are. This country, we're just so, so behind on these questions. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Michael. I'm speaking to a gentleman, I've, I've mentioned this book a, a few times now, Ben Bratton for Navarra FM, probably next week. Um, and, and it brings these questions into really sharp relief. And I think it does, it does ultimately boil down to the fact that we have political orthodoxy and I don't mean a political class because we could replace all the politicians and, the, you know, we could replace them with a, a bunch of other people from the Tory party, the Labour party, they would do the exact same thing. You know, we could change the head of the CBI and they would do the same things, demand the same things. We have a political orthodoxy, which is fundamentally not about solving problems. And it's still looking at maximising liberty, not inhibiting the, the sort of autonomy and agency of the individual. These quite now anachronistic 
things, these quite anachronistic concerns. You know, I have a right not to wear a mask, for instance. It's clearly quite a strange thing. So the the, the book it sort of engages with that in, in a really, really interesting way. I suppose what you've not mentioned really, Michael, is, is vaccine passports and the difference that that could make. And I suppose that the counter would be, well, actually, we don't need these things. We can actually have really poor ventilation. We don't need to wear masks. You can go to nightclubs. We can open up schools. You know, again, clearly lots of kids are going to get sick, but the extent to which that will percolate through to wider society is questionable if we have vaccine passports. And that, that does seem a bit of a Hail Mary because nowhere's really trialed that. I, I, maybe you can correct me, but we don't have an example of a society where five, ten percent of the population is infected and simultaneously 50, 60 percent of the population is kind of insulated for the prob- from the problem. That, that seems to be the Tory position come October, November. I mean, it, it, may, it may be the case. I, I suspect it won't work. And I suspect we'll sort of move into a new, a new phase of, of the problem, of the crisis, which is things will generally be open. Hospitals won't be at breaking point. But I think you'll, you'll see a massive sort of economic drawdown. I think you'll still see extensive working from home where possible. I think you'll see many, many people affected in more precarious work where they can't get sick pay you know, incredibly, you know, precarious living on the breadline. And that's going to throw up a bunch of of new or different economic, political and social concerns. And, you know, again, the, the left has to be a bit more prepared for that. So the question is, oh, we're going to have another lockdown. We need lockdown. I think maybe we, we need a proper conversation actually about, well, what's sick pay going to look like, for instance, over the next 18 months, two years, because this probably isn't going to go away. Um, and, you know, we probably will see significant numbers of people dying every day. I, I don't think a lockdown is the solution. I don't think it will happen because, you know, over 50% of the, the public has now been vaccinated. About 77% of the working age population, those over 18, have had two vaccines. So it's super interesting. Um, I mean, I, what, what do you think? Do you think they're looking at the, the vaccine passport as the Hail Mary? No, I don't think they are, to be honest. I mean, for me, vaccine passports, I'm... I'm not particularly incensed about them in either direction. I think w- one argument for them would be that there are some there are some areas which are always going to be unsafe. However well you ventilate a nightclub, that is still going to be somewhere that's a potential super spreader event because you've got lots of people in a closed space. They're shouting, they're screaming. That's what you want to be doing. They're kissing each other. It's kind of thing you want to do in a nightclub. So, so for me, the only way you could make that a bit safer if we do have surges in the winter is something like like vaccine passports. I wouldn't see them mm. as a way to control COVID-19. I'd just see them as a potential way to keep nightclubs open. Do, do you know what I mean? I, your, I obset- your obsession with nightclubs continues. My obsession with nightclubs. I don't think it goes beyond that. But I don't think COVID vac- vaccine passports is what really matters going into this, this winter. I think ventilation is going to be much more important. And I think there the issue is that the government just cannot be bothered to invest. Because no, is, I, I, it, it would require a lot of money. And we know with, you know, for example, how long it has taken them to take down flammable cladding from buildings, which we we all watched exactly. kill 70 odd people, right? It's taken them three years to take that down. So can you imagine a government who's taken three years to take that down now managing to implement ventilation in every supermarket, shop and school? I don't think it should be hard to imagine that. I think that's precisely the kind of thing our government should be doing right now. There are governments in the world doing that right now. But for me, I think the government are like, oh, we're not up to that. We can't do that. And so that's why more people are going to catch COVID this this winter than than they probably need to. And not just COVID, as those SAGE documents said, all the other respiratory viruses that are going to be going around this, this winter, because ventilation wouldn't just help us during COVID. 
I'd quite like a society where I'm less likely to get a cold and I'm less likely to get the flu, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Obviously, I'm not. I don't want anyone's freedoms to be restricted, so I don't get the flu or so I don't get a cold. I don't want flu or cold passports for for yeah. nightclubs. But if we could just install some better ventilation everywhere, then that's 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 all that's all upsides. But, but do you, as we, I say, the, the government don't want to do that because they're terrified of of investment and intervening in the economy. Yeah, I think the problem is as well, Michael, that the second you sh you demonstrate that actually the government and the state can intervene and can do things effectively, much more so than the market, they they are really worried about this. And that's one of the reasons why they've not engaged in these kinds of interventions. You know, the Tories, they can't build cycle lanes while the Chinese are building 600 kilometers per hour maglev train systems spanning the whole country. So again, you know, the capacity for Western governments to solve problems after the last 18 months, not particularly good. Uh, and in Britain, in Britain in particular, not, not not very good at all. Very unimpressive. I think as well for the vaccine passports thing, because I think it's boiled down. It's become a bit strange. So people are saying, "Oh, we can't have vaccine passports because you want access to basic goods and services without having to, you know, submit a form of identity." I agree with that argument. But clearly, clearly, we can't open sporting events. Clearly, we shouldn't do it. It's deeply irresponsible, I think, to open sports stadia to you know even half capacity crowds in the absence of a measure like that. That's just that's just my opinion, uh, but I can see why you know why you would have those why you'd have those mechanisms there. Clearly, people shouldn't be storing the data and so on. I would far rather people are able to watch football and submit that document than you know players play to em empty stadia for another six months. You know your priorities, nightclubs, Michael. Mine is uh, <laughs> mine is the the Premier League and the football pyramid. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Premier League are are implementing vaccine passports. Apparently, that's what they've said. Um, and also, I mean, I, I think this, the vaccine passport already exists. I've actually got it on my phone now. The, the NHS app gives you a, I mean, I haven't used it yet, but it gives you, what's it called? A QR code. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but it doesn't, doesn't seem like a sort of mind-bending development. Let's go straight on to our next story. Almost everyone agrees that Britain has a serious housing crisis. Indeed, our Tory government often admits so. However, nothing ever seems to be done about it. And a recent report in the Financial Times gave us a clue why. The FT have revealed that the Conservative Party has received almost £18 million in donations from 154 donors with property interests since Boris Johnson became UK Prime Minister two years ago. A quarter of the Conservatives' party income comes from pleasing landlords. There was no data available on donations from private renters, as you can imagine. I'm pretty sure that doesn't make up a large proportion of income for the Conservative party. To get an idea of why this matters, we can take a look at some of the key donors, some of the key individuals involved. Anthony Gallagher is a billionaire property tycoon specializing in buying and preparing land plots for residential and commercial development. He sold his land business in 2017 for £505 million, but then he reinvested the money in the private rental sector. According to the FT, Gallagher has been the most generous property donor to the Tories since Johnson took office in 2019. He's given £1.5 million through his company, County Wide Development. Now you might be wondering, well, you know, what does he get out of this? Potentially, you know, if you're if you're if you've invested millions of pounds into the private rental market, then you get quite a lot out of the Tory government. Also, um, and obviously, it's not for me to suggest there was anything transactional here. It just so happens that Gallagher received a knighthood in 2020 for services to land development and property. He began donating to the Tories as just Tony. He's now Sir Tony. 
Another big donor was John Stuart Bloor. He's the billionaire owner of Bloor Homes, which is one of the biggest private house builders in the UK. He's donated 1.1 million to the Conservatives since Boris Johnson took charge. As you'd expect, as with all of these donors, Bloor has denied he wanted any favours in return for that £1.1 million. He told the FT, I have never met Boris Johnson or spoken to him or his ministers. Neither have I employed lobbyists. We donate money to the Conservative Party and charities because we agree with their ethos of aspiration and hope for individuals and children and expect nothing in return for these donations. A very, very reassuring statement there. There are some coincidences which might raise suspicions, though. We know from an earlier report in the Sunday Times that the timing of these donations is, let's say, notable. That's because earlier this year, Bloor donated £150,000 to the Tories two days after a housing minister gave the green light to a Bloor proposal to build hundreds of homes on rural land in Herefordshire. Aaron, we talked last week about your brilliant piece on some of the effects of the housing crisis on mental health, among many other issues, this story suggests it won't be resolved anytime soon. I mean, unbelievable, Michael. You know, between 2005, 2015, the Tories fundraised a quarter of a billion pounds, 250 million pounds. That's the kind of money it took for them to, to re-enter the political sort of mainstream and, and form a government, and nothing's really changed since then. And then you compare it to, to Labour, Right. And Labour have made huge. And of course, you'd hope that there's a Labour government in order to change housing policy so that we can stop this rat run that so many people are, are stuck in, which is a deeply dysfunctional way to run society. And Labour, you know, I saw a funny story being spun by The Times last week about how donors are returning to Labour. One was Dale Vince from Ecotricity. Well, he donated money under Corbyn. Another was uh, somebody in the gambling industry. But apparently, according to Matt Saab, he's, he's, he's not particularly bad. Uh, he donated money under Corbyn. And then finally, there was a donation from Trevor Chin, which I think was in the tens of thousands of pounds. So the, the, the ballpark the Tories are in, Russian oligarchs, property developers, people who are absolutely invested in literally Britain's casino economy, squeezing the poor and the working class of this country against Trevor Chin giving 20, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds. And what's super interesting is that many people were perfectly happy to fund Keir Starmer to become Labour leader, but they're not willing, i.e. to remove the left from any position of political influence in this country, but they're not willing to fund him against the Tories because fundamentally they, they want things to stay the same. And I think, you know, you have to follow the money in politics. And that quote that you just, uh, you just read out on air, Michael, was sickening because it said that we support the Tories because of aspiration for people and for, for, for kids. There are 4.3 million people in this country, 4.3 million young people, children, minors, who are in poverty. 4.3 million. It's gone up pretty much every year since the Tories have been in power since 2010. Uh, the people who are renting in private accommodation has been going up comparative to home ownership or social housing every year since 2010. Ditto rough sleeping would have, with, of course, the exception of the the pandemic. And so you're, you're effectively looking at, you know, corruption in, in plain sight. And clearly the only political alternative, clearly, you know, the whole thing about Corbyn or Bernie Sanders and, you know, you know the, the wisdom of crowds and people powered movement and bringing in money, you know, this was kind of diminished and mocked by the centrist commentariat as if Labour have an alternative, as if people like this are going to fund the Labour Party and we're going to start seeing loads of social housing being built or we're going to see greater regular, regulation on HMOs or rent caps. Of course we aren't. So clearly the only political alternative 
that could take that on, which could find funding, would have to be from a different source. Uh, and, and we've just been dealing with hypnotic centrist zombies, Michael, for six, seven years. And it's it's terrifying. And in the meantime, these people, these kinds of donors like this gentleman, the Russian oligarchs, and, you know, frankly speaking, the parasitic uh, rentiers that run Britain's economy in their own interest, the not, not the 1%, the 0.1%, they're laughing while we have the sort of centrist commentariat thinking that they can do what those guys do. And at the same time, they can sort of, you know, implement better policy. Well, you can't. The reason why we have a broken housing system, the reason why the Tories are happy to keep on with that is it, it's in their interests. You know, we need to bring people together. It's not about dividing people. No, we need to divide landlords from tenants. They don't have the same interests. That's not, that's not me being nasty and divisive. It's a matter of fact. A landlord wants high rents. A tenant wants cheap rents. Just as a worker wants different things from a boss. You know, a boss wants cheap employees. And a worker wants high wages. They don't have shared interests. Uh, and sadly, we've been stuck in this very strange rhetorical cycle uh, for too long, where it's been dominated by, like I say, centrist zombies. But this is why our politics is broken, Michael. Follow the money. We're going to continue following the money. Um, there was uh, another FT report on the influence of Tory donors on the party. A couple of really good reports from the FT this week. In this report... Um, they reveal that there is a secretive club for major conservative donors known as the Advisory Board, and it has been holding regular meetings and calls with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. The club, some of whose members have given at least £250,000 to the party, has been developed by Ben Elliott, Tory co-chair, as a means of connecting major conservative backers with its top figures. The club does not appear in party literature, but conservative officials confirmed the advisory board occasionally meets with Johnson and Sunak for an update on the political landscape. One person briefed on the advisory board's activities said it held monthly meetings or conference calls with either the Prime Minister or the Chancellor. Some members have used those discussions to call for public spending cuts and lower taxes, a donor said. The report did speak to some sources who defended um, the, core, the Tory co-chair for setting up this advisory group. They write, supporters of Elliott say the Conservatives have long had a leaders group where donors who give £50,000 are offered regular meetings with ministers. The advisory board operates at a more rarefied level with some members giving the party five times that amount. Well-placed Conservatives say that not everyone on the advisory board has given £250,000, but some had. Now, Aaron, the thing that strikes me about this, now I think we all, you know, we knew that people who give £250,000 to the Conservative Party aren't just doing it out of the goodness of their heart because, you know, as that property developer said, oh, because we believe in personal aspiration. No, we're not that naive, right? You know that what is happening is that they want influence over government. That's why they do it. What shocked me about this one, though, is they call them the advisory group. Right. You're at least supposed to maintain the pretense, right, that we don't take direction from our donors. The donors donate to us because we do what they believe, but we don't do what we do because they believe it. You know, we don't take advice from our donors. But they've called the group of five figure donors, six figure donors, the, ad the advisory group. Well, it goes back to the thing I said to you, Michael, between 2005, 2015, right? The Conservatives raise a quarter of a billion pounds. It's no coincidence that after 2010, you get austerity. And you get a massive growth in inequality uh, between rich and poor. You see a direct funneling of money and funds from the poorest and most vulnerable in society to the wealthiest. You see the erosion of, 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 of the state infrastructure basically to enrich 
private corporate interests, particularly through outsourcing, zero hours contracts, privatizations. You see the privatization, for instance, of you know Royal Mail. You see the Cameron government trying to sell off. It sells off, for instance, uh, East Coast Mainline. It sells off, you know, equity in banks. Those people gave that quarter of a billion pounds to the Conservative Party. You know, the, the Labour Party weren't particularly radical under Blair and Brown, Michael. But the point is, with the rich, it's never, it's never enough. It's never enough. And so they said, look, we want our lower taxes. We we don't want to actually fund, you know, the NHS. And their reward was a Conservative government from 2010. And shame on them with the Liberal Democrats, which implemented austerity. That is a quid pro quo. That was a direct transaction of money, resources and funds for certain political outcomes, right? It wasn't an accident. If the Tories after 2005, particularly after the financial crisis, were saying, we're going to increase taxes and we're going to bring things into public ownership, they wouldn't be getting that money, would they? Pretty obvious. And it's pretty obvious why, you know, millionaires weren't donating to Labour, and they, they still aren't, but particularly weren't donating to Labour when, when Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader because there's a transaction going on. And I find it supremely odd, Michael, that the exact same people, the ex literally the exact same people, will say on the one hand, you get, you know, everything has a price. It's all about, you know, uh, profit maximization, return on investment. All these people, really cold-hearted, ruthless business killers, these exact same people will say, I'm giving tens of millions of pounds or hundreds of thousands of pounds to political party. I don't want anything in return. Come on, we weren't born yesterday. And again, to return to my previous points, Michael, about the sort of centrist punditocracy, who actually are among the stupidest people in this country, if it is willful ignorance, then that's a different proposition. But I think actually, sadly, a lot of the time it isn't. I think a lot of the time they actually believe what they're saying. They are the most naive, credulous people imaginable. I think the average person recognizes the fact big money donors do these things to get influence to shape outcomes. So yes, they call it the advisory board, but even if they didn't do that, Michael, we kind of know why, why they're doing this. And it's the exact same thing you know, with trade unions. Trade unions fund the Labour Party so that we can get political outcomes which are more advantageous to trade unions and organised labour. We, we, we should just be open about it. And it's not about, oh, well, they're just equally bad. No, this is good. This other thing is bad. This other thing is bad. A society where Jeff Bezos can have Amazon workers pissing in water bottles and he spends the money on a jolly into space is bad. A society where we have universal literacy, publicly funded healthcare, everybody has access to a home, a job, clean drinking water, food. This is good. This is qualitatively better than that. They're not both equally bad. I think anybody that says otherwise is is clearly ridiculous or or is actually just incredibly wealthy and wants to kind of mask the fact they're advancing their own interests. Two very important groups in politics there. The, the very rich and powerful people who want to protect their interests and then the credulous people who are willing to go along with it. We're going to go straight to our next story. At Navarra Media, we pride ourselves on being independent of billionaire barons. That's because we're funded by our audience. We're funded by you. We don't have to answer to anyone with particular vested interests. It's very different from people who work for the Murdoch press, people who work for the Sun, people who work for the Times, people who work for talk radio. They do know that ultimately their wages are being paid by Rupert Murdoch. And this is why I think they often lash out at us. They lash out at independent journalists who aren't funded by billionaires. It happens quite a lot, surprisingly. And it happened this week. This week, we got attacked by Oliver Cam. He's a leader, writer, and columnist for the Murdoch-owned Times. On Thursday, he tweeted the following. Navarra Media can say whatever it likes without checking. That's the difference between blogging and genuine reporting. 
Now, I saw that tweet and it piqued my interest. Someone challenging, disputing the editorial standards of Navarra Media. I wanted to know about it. He was sharing an article from the Jewish Chronicle. Um, we can take a look at that piece now. Um, so their headline, Pro Corbyn Journal claims Starmer agreed quick deal to form to former leaders return. Now, this is a reference to a brilliant article we have on our website by Oliver Eagleton. It's about the events which led to Corbyn being suspended from the Labour Party. Now, I'd expected that I'd have a look at that JC article and there'd be some disputation of what was in that article, some sort of claim that what was written there was false. That seems to be the implication of what Oliver Cam has said. I read that entire Jewish Chronicle article. There was nothing. All it had, the, the only criticisms it had of the piece was, was the following. They write, According to the article, Sakir had personally promised his predecessor to share his speech in advance, but failed to do so. The leader's office has yet to comment on the claims by Mr. Eagleton, editor of the New Left Review and author of a new book on Sakir, but the article was met with derision on social media. Actor Marlon Solomon branded it the comedy revision stage of Navarra Media's anti-Semitism coverage. He posted, so Starmer withholds sending him his speech just so Corbyn could walk into the trap of just being Corbyn, then he could suspend him. Filmmaker Oscar Turgi branded the article a ridiculous narrative, saying it was actually hilarious that they had settled on this story to defend their cult leader's behavior regarding anti-Semitism. Now, that's just two tweets from people who are always angry at Navarra Media, making no factual claim about what was in the article. They're just lashing out at Navarra Media, as they always do. These are, by the way, two very obsessive accounts. And Oliver Cam thinks this counts as a cautionary tale. I was very confused. I pointed this out to Oliver Cam. I think this was in, I thought, I thought it was quite a polite tweet, to be honest. So I, I tweeted, Cam, how is this a cautionary tale in anything? We've published a well-sourced article. You're sharing an article based on tweets from two obsessive accounts in a newspaper who last week had to pay out damages for publishing something they admitted was entirely untrue. That was because of their coverage of Mark Wadsworth. Now, I didn't get a sensible response from Oliver Cam to that. Instead, he put his account on private. So no one could see that tweet. He just tweeted and no one could see anything he tweeted. He locked his account. Then behind the veil of secrecy, now we had to see this from screenshots because obviously we can't see his account once it goes private. He goes on to slag off Navarra Media. Now, not because of any supposed factual inaccuracy, even though they couldn't find any, but because of where we live. So Oliver Cam writes, just protected my tweets, comrades and friends to preempt a drearily predictable fusillade from Navarra Media, denouncing me from the comfort of their bedsits. Life is short and I've got work to do. Aaron, I want to bring you in on this. We have discussed before Times journalists lashing out at Navarra Media on very shaky foundations. I mean, this is particularly shaky and then ends up just being very unpleasant. You're saying we live in bedsits. Now, you can see where I live. Um, it's not a bedsit, but if it was, I wouldn't have any shame about that. Many people do have to live in bedsits. It's what you, it's where you live if you're on a low income, right? Actually, to be honest, not many people can afford to live in a bedsit in London now. You, you nearly always have to share a house with lots of people. But anyway, the impression he is trying to make there is these people don't have much money. So he said, one, you don't have high editorial standards. Oh, you've called me out because I actually couldn't locate where the editorial standards were wanting. Now I'm just going to diss you on the basis that you don't have as much money as me. Aaron, what's going on here? What a pathetic little worm, Michael. Oliver Cam, you pathetic little worm. First of all, like you say, we're regulated by Impress. You, people are welcome to dislike Navarra. Fine, it's a free country. Knock yourself out. Some people are going to like us. Some people are going to dislike us. It's a well-researched piece, well-written. The gentleman's going to write a book with Verso Books. You know, it's not just some 
made up gobbledygook. This is serious arguments are being made, well researched. Now, if you want to find a problem with them, like you say, Michael, when that tweet went out, uh, the article went out from the Jewish Chronicle, I thought, oh, God, you know, we've got some inaccuracy here. We're going to have to edit something, make a correction. Okay, well, let's see. And like you said, it's just two pranks, frankly, tweeting about us. And they're obs they are obsessives. And it had nothing remotely to do with the substance of the points being made in the article or, or even countering them. And when this was pointed out to Mr. Cam, who is quoting a piece from the Jewish Chronicle, which has been subject, I think, now to four libel settlement, settlements. It's settled. It's given money to people over libel cases in recent years. It's been forced by Ipso, which is regulated by, to make nine corrections, I think, in three years. We're regulated at Navarra Media by Impress, which is a higher standard than Ipso. Ipso is effectively a self-regulator for the, for, the, for the print media in this country. We're regulated by Impress. We've had zero corrections in the last three years. The Jewish Chronicle have had nine, and Oliver Cam, because frankly, he's an ignorant man, but because he's posh, because he has money, he thinks that he always knows best. It's remarkable. He was completely found out. He was revealed as the ignoramus that he is. I mean, you just haven't got a leg to stand on saying they're just a blog, they're not regulated. Actually, we are regulated to a higher standard, and we've had no corrections. People said, well, people don't really care about Navarro Media. Guess what? When you're writing articles about John Ware, about the labor leaks, about trade union general secretaries who subsequently had to resign because of a story we published, we're getting lots of correspondence from lawyers. You wouldn't be surprised. Point is, we do things professionally and we haven't fallen short yet. You might have to make a correction one day, but so far we haven't. So we're regulated. And of course, the moment he was found out, Michael, this, this, this cheap, smarmy little man had to start making comments about where we live. I don't, I don't live in a bedsit. If I did, it wouldn't make the slightest difference in terms of the quality of my opinion or the substance of my character, for better or for worse. And actually, if Oliver, Oliver Cam is any indicator, there's somebody who has a, presumably he has a nice home, uh, who's very well off, who's very expensively educated, they can be assholes. It doesn't mean that they're particularly intelligent because he was wrong in this instance. And he, he, he sort of made a sort of cowardly way out by rather than sort of apologizing or trying to defend his argument, just started name calling. And it's, it's factually inaccurate. Uh, and also people said, you know, they're student politics. Students don't live in bedsits, as you've just, you've just said, Michael. It's, it's generally single men on low incomes. It's generally single men on low incomes. And actually, I'm not surprised he used that argument, Michael. And actually, it was in a way, it's positive. Because rather than saying this nonsense, or actually, Navarro Media, they're all posh. He's now saying, well, actually, they're all in bedsits. They're, they're poor idiots. I'm not going to waste my time on them. I only waste my time on rich people. I bet you do. I bet I bet those are the only people you talk to. That's why you're very out of touch on a whole bunch of issues. I'd, I'd rather him say that, Michael. Where's a compliment than saying we're we're posh, than saying, you know, we all live in beds. It's fine. You go knock yourself out, Oliver. You ignorant, small twit. Aaron, we're going to finish on time today. It's a rare occurrence. It's been a pleasure, as always, speaking to you this Friday evening. It's been my pleasure, Michael. Uh, I'm very sorry for our audience who've been subjected to the uh, the idiocy of uh, Oliver Cam. I don't think there's a distance as big in the universe as as the one, the gulf, between how smart that guy thinks he is and how stupid he really is. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's like the Grand Canyon. It's a very... Uh... A very true statement to end the show. A very, a very appropriate way to do so. Um, thank you for watching tonight. Have a wonderful weekend. If you are a regular donor to Navarro Media, thank you so much. You make this all possible. If not, please do consider going to navarromedia.com forward slash support. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Bye.
Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.